0: It's really hard to find skilled labor. And it's really hard to try to maximize output on the capital equipment that you have. And so, you know, we kind of have this term, you can't find skilled labor by skilled material. And so we put a lot of emphasis on providing material that can be a substitute for labor because of the efficiency gains that you can get by going with a tighter
1: tolerance material. (laughs) This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Our guest on today's show is Steve Tamazi, owner and CEO of Boston Centerless, a distributor and manufacturer of ground bar stock. I asked Steve why there is such a shortage of raw materials for precision turning manufacturers, and what companies can do to deal with this problem. We also talked about how the war in Ukraine is affecting metals prices. And what is pig iron anyway? Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's com. I am very honored to be with Steve Tamazi owner and CEO of Boston Centerless in Woburn, Massachusetts. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about the metals business. It's something a lot of people are talking about when I call them as a used machine tool dealer. It's a great time for machining companies, but this is one of the the hurdles people are dealing with. So Steve, I think is going to be really good to shed some light on what this business is, and and hopefully has some good advice on what we can do. First, though, I want a quick summary of Boston Centerless. Just tell us about the company today. What are you guys sure. all about? And then, then I'm going to go into some history, etc. But first, just a brief overview.
0: Sure, we uh, we are a value-added distributor uh, with a heavy heavy emphasis on the value add side uh, for precision bar materials. So our primary product is precision round bar, primarily for uh, use in a CNC screw machine. So as Boston Sentinelis has grown and how we're currently constituted today, our desire is to manage all of the raw material requirements and preparatory services for those materials into our company's operations, securing and procuring the material doing all of the preparatory stuff, straightening, grinding, chamfering, cutting if necessary, heat treating, non-destructive testing, whatever is required prior to putting it into the machine, pressing go, and making a component. So we okay. want to handle all of that in one stop.
1: What specific materials do you guys specialize?
0: It's a good question. We will basically supply anything that's round. And, and, and I say that you know the, the primary markets that we're serving, a lot of the products are made out of stainless steels. Titanium would probably be number two, hmm. um, followed closely by aluminum, and then red metals. Uh, but we even get into plastics um, and really any type of, of of raw material, depending on the application.
1: But not regular steel as much.
0: We do some regular steel, but a lot of the critical applications that we're supplying into that require the kind of tolerances that we're talking about, whether it's a medical device implant or a um, uh, an aerospace uh, valve or something along those lines, it requires a higher property than a higher grade material. So that's why a lot of it is stainless or special alloys, you know, the nickel grades and things of that nature.
1: How much of your customers are Swiss houses?
0: The vast majority, we do business with the OEMs and all of their subcontractors. But I would say, again, the vast majority of the products that we're selling, maybe 80% are going into a Swiss-type screw machine somewhere.
1: What size companies are you mainly selling to or just all across the board?
0: All across the board. I mean, we do business with the Johnson & Johnsons and all of their, you know, facilities and the Strikers and Zimmer Biomits to, you know, a, a, a one-man shop, whatever it requires.
1: Right. So it's not like, oh, don't bother with us. You You only have a couple employees. You know, it's everybody.
0: Not at all. Not at all if our business it's between 50 50 60 40 either way in terms of contract business where we're doing some you know real managed long term business with accounts versus transactional kind of coming in over the transom quick hit spot buy type stuff so we enjoy both and and so whoever's calling you know we'll respond and really don't discriminate
1: interesting all right now i want to get the 3 minute bio of you at the company and, and then we're, this is going to delve into some very interesting history of, of the company. I want to learn a little bit about that as well. But how did you start at the company?
0: So I'm a second generation owner. My dad, Len, started the business um, as a, an Italian an immigrant came over and after working some odd jobs, uh, um, started uh, with one machine in a garage. You know, in what, between-
1: Where in Italy are you from? Because I'm, you know, I'm a big fan.
0: It's now the Molise region, Abruzzia, Molise, right in the center of the country, about okay. two hours east of Rome. Okay. North of Naples, in the center of the country. So uh,
1: All right, I'll stop interrupting you on this. So your that's father came right. <laughs> your father came when in the 50s or 40s? Uh,
0: 1946. So lived through the war in his town type thing. His father was here from when he was six to seventeen, sending money back. And as the war ended, um, they hopped on a, a boat and came over. So anyway, you know, for a few different, you know, things, he went into um, a business with one machine and kind of built it up from there, and you know, grew the business uh, every year up through from 1958 to the mid 80s. And I came on board full time in the late 80s. So okay. I graduated. I worked for um, a Swiss machine tool company in Switzerland for a while, and then I worked. That same company in the States here, selling and servicing machines. And then after what a couple years- What was the company? Years, companies called Agathon.
1: Oh, okay. Agathon. Yeah. They make really high-end grinders. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yep. And so anything from a tool that started with the tool grinders, but then they had the you know, 8, 9, 10 access uh, insert grinding machines. uh was really what they're, they're built on. But they also had a small line of centerless grinders. And so I went over there, worked in an um, in assembly. I worked in um, the, the the runoff department, grinding runoff department. So really learned the essence of centerless grinding and then came and did sales and service engineering for them in the States for a year.
1: And year this and was, this, this was kind of with the plan of going into the family biz,
0: you know, it was never a direct correlation. I, I kind of, wasn't the most um, focused uh, as a young man. <laughs> so I kind of took things as they came and, um, Always had the opportunity for that. And, and you know, I was an industrial engineering major in, in, in college. So it made sense for me to go into uh, you know, kind of the manufacturing world. And as I was working there, I, I kind of got recruited to come back in the business and um decided. You hadn't you
1: hadn't been planning on going in all along and I mean, because it I seems really, like it's pretty correlated. I mean, yeah,
0: it, it, it is, um, but it was never the full intention on on my end. Um, I was just a little reluctant to jump in and do business with my dad and, you know, that early on. And um, I wanted to have some other life experiences. So I didn't have any direct line that says, I'm definitely going to, you know, run that business sure. someday.
1: Were you working so, there as a, as a child?
0: I did. I worked summers, you know, the whole gamut, sweep the floor, worked in the warehouse, you know, all right. doing all sorts of odd jobs. So.
1: Let's take it back a little bit. You started with the history of your father starting out working. um, He was working in a machining company at first. Yes. Tell us how Boston Center was started and how it evolved, because it's really gone through some really interesting stages. Yeah.
0: So as I mentioned, my dad was working in a machining company. He he was going to school nights to become an architect, thought it would be advantageous to work in a uh, machine shop where they had drawings and such. So he went in there. He had a friend that worked there, brought him in and started um, working on a stainless grinding machine and um, was very adept and and quite uh, creative and productive with that machine Um, to the point where a few years later, um, one of his foremen asked if he wanted to go into business together. So they got a machine and started doing some odd grind all grinding jobs for customers at night. And after a year, the uh, partner said, you know, this isn't for me. So my dad um, quit his job, put a second mortgage on the house, and and went full bore into Sandless grinding. So started doing odd grinding jobs for other people's material. And over time, customers said, Well, hey, can you supply me the material as well? And started a another kind of line of business, which ultimately was called Acurod, A-C-C-U-R-O-D, where he would buy the material grind it, and then sell it to the customer. How common was
1: this, sir? Is it mostly back then, it was just sort of you're a a contractor. Everybody just sends you the metal that they've bought from a mill, and then you grind it for them.
0: Well, yeah, the the reality is that most of the grinding was done after the machines, the um, uh, components were machined. Oh, okay. So there was no pre-grinding of material Until the late 60s, early 70s, when my dad really started to get some inquiries to explore that, because there were companies out there that realized if I start with better material, I'll have an easier time machining the component on the back end.
1: Was that Swiss Um, machining?
0: The Swiss machining really came in the 70s is when it really, you know, certainly CNC, Swiss screw machining, really came to kind of fruition in the 70s.
1: But they were still using ground stock even before Swiss machining?
0: Uh, Yeah, for certain applications and lathes and chuckers and things of that nature, because it would be easier to turn concentricity, you know, components and shafts with different diameters. You could hold tighter tolerances. So even before then, but the real advent came when people wanted full length bars to a specific size. And so my dad had close relationships with a mill at the time. And the warehouses that they had and would call and ask for material that might be slightly oversized, he would bring that in, bring it to a size and a tighter tolerance, and then sell that. Mm -hmm. And that became really the advent for precision ground material. My father, I wouldn't say invented it, but he was the first to react to the demand in the marketplace for that type of service.
1: He was the only one, at least in the US, doing something like this? Absolutely. Absolutely just getting the metal himself, grinding it and selling it to people as opposed to them bringing it to him. Right.
0: Tighter tolerances than what the mill would provide, you know, themselves. Exactly.
1: Was this kind of thing going on elsewhere in the world? You know, I'm not entirely sure,
0: but um, I do know just from my early years, you know, say 10, 12 years hence, um, that there were not um, many people, if any, that were doing that kind of one-stop shop of procuring and then holding and then you know inventorying and then providing material from stock in a precision ground state. More than the other grinding houses, and really still predominantly today, are performing grinding services on other people's supplied material.
1: So there must be some people with your business model now, right? Are you- there are. A lot of
0: them are regional players. There are a few national players. And there are a few people that have, from the distribution side, partnered with Grinding Houses to provide offerings, but they're limited. Um, They're not doing the manufacturing in-house, so they're only able to control so much of the quality and the manufacturing process. So I wouldn't say it's equal, but it's in the same ballpark.
1: When we were talking before, um, the way you characterize the company is it's a one-stop shop more or less like you're taking headache, taking variables away that people might have if they were doing some other model with their getting their material, correct? Correct. Give me your pitch, your one-stop shop pitch.
0: Well, look, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that we've been able to do and the the reason that we continue to grow our business is that um, the more we're able to get out and educate customers and talk to them about the model, the more it makes sense. So because we've been in business for as long as we have, we've got very strong supplier relationships. So we have good continuity of supply. We're able to work with those suppliers to get us the best product, kind of pre-finished product that will make our operations the most optimal as well. And so we have very high standards in terms of the quality of the material that we're providing. Because at the end of the day, the customer could have the best possible raw material, but if they don't have good dimensional tolerances, they're going to have issues and vice versa. They could have the best dimensional tolerances, but if the material is machining like rocks, that doesn't help them either. So we take the approach that what we're providing you is a finished product that will make your operation the most efficient and optimal possible. So what we're trying to do is control all of the variables on the front end, Provide the most accurate and consistent bar. So when you go to your process, you can basically set up your operation in a way that takes huge chunks of cost out, yeah. whether it's labor, whether it's tooling, whether it's oversight, because you can you can rely on the consistency of the bar coming in from Boston Centralists, knowing that you're not going to have an issue. And that takes a while for some customers to come around and adopt because you know they really have to believe. That what you're saying is true, and you right. know, over the years we've had many customers say, you know, we never realized how bad we had it, right? Until they get acclimated, they get on board, and they understand. Because if there's a problem with the raw material, there's a problem dimensionally, there's a problem with a heat treats back, anything like that, you just come to one pl- right. company, and we take care of it. That's the that's the benefit.
1: Right. I could see it being a problem if you have to get the material from somewhere else. And then you have to send it to you and all these other variables can happen. And who's at fault if something doesn't work? Exactly. Um, So you just take responsibility for it. It's got to be good. And if there's a problem, they can go back to you. And it doesn't matter what the problem is. You're there to guarantee it.
0: Yeah. And as we've grown over the last, I'd say, eight to 10 years, we've developed a much more robust distribution aspect to our business and supply chain aspect to the customer. So we've always had strong supply relationships, but now we're building the infrastructure to support our customers around the country and around the globe in a just-in-time basis.
1: So you're doing this all over the place. Like you, you have grown crazy amount, correct?
0: We have, we have. And so we sell to 49 to 50 states every year and uh, probably 20, 25 countries every year.
1: Wow. Do you sell to Asian countries?
0: We do. Mm-hmm. We do. We have uh, sales representation in China um, and that has, uh, you know, allowed us to garner some some additional business as well as, you know, Malaysia, Korea, Taiwan. Um, we have sales representation in Ireland to cover Ireland and England. And then we have a uh, sales representation in Central America to cover Mexico, Central America.
1: And so. you get the medals from all over the world.
0: The vast majority of our metal comes from U.S. and European mills.
1: What about in China? Do you sell Chinese companies metal from China? No. No.
0: No. The reason they come to Boston Centralis is because of our supplier relationships and our uh, stocking and inventory on metals, primarily for applications in medical device and other critical fields that they just can't get. Those products aren't being made in China. So they have to come to a company in the States to do that. it's
1: not just quality. It's not just like suspect quality. It's just they can't make it. Right. What was your feeling about the tariffs a few years ago that are are still here today? How did that affect your business? How did you see that affecting your customers?
0: Yeah, there was a lot of unknown and and confusion at the outset of that. From our perspective, the tariffs from our European uh, mills have put them in a, from a price perspective in a more competitive state with the mills in the U.S., but it didn't put them in a competitive disadvantage. So uh, we're still buying as much as you know we might have in the past.
1: But we're that paying if, a ton more, right? I mean, I was talking to Miles Free, and he was saying we're paying like an incredible amount more than the Europeans, for instance, for our material. Correct.
0: If the Europeans are making it and selling it in Europe to machining companies, yes, there's no question about that. But you know, th- there are certain materials and grades of steel that are made in the States that aren't being made over there. So there's probably some reciprocal. Depends on what application you're in. From our perspective, where we're supplying people all over, we don't have that same perspective as the end user does, the machining company. It's terms of what we're paying for the raw material is fairly equivalent when it comes from a European source versus a U.S. source. But if others were used to buying European metal at a much lower rate, obviously, you know, that's being passed on and passed through the supply chain.
1: And you don't think that this helped much for American mills to up their production? It really, I mean, didn't really you know, serve its purpose, did it?
0: Well, so so my, my stance on this is that it was really targeted towards the carbon market, which we don't play in much. All right, and so th- there are certain elements and uh, other metals like aluminum, where I think there were some of the primary metals companies in the U.S. that were looking at you know unfair subsidies and trade you know pricing coming into the U.S. for market share purposes that they needed to have rectified. I mean, you know, if you look at some of the end users that were saying, "Oh, we're paying so much more," but you know, if you put your, sh- your foot on the other shoe. Uh, shoe on the other foot, excuse me. And you say you're you're buying from somebody that's cheating. You know that's what their competitors in the U.S. are saying is they can't make it for that. Yeah. And I, I tell you, I know a certain parts of metal producing. It's not like the U.S. is inefficient. I mean, the amount of labor that goes into making steel today versus thirty years ago is infinitesimal, small. Interesting. You know, there were subsidies. There were practices. You know, for to keep the price down so they could sell more and keep these mills up and running. And so not looking at it from the buyer perspective, but looking at it purely from a competitive nature in that segment of the marketplace, I can understand why the tariffs were put in place, okay? Mm -hmm. Where it's a challenge is if it constrains supply. And we're in a really challenging market that-
1: Right. um, That's what I was going to get to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're in a very, very challenging market right now from a capacity perspective. And because a lot of this steel tariff, so to speak, again, I believe were designed for carbon and really were to attack the, the Chinese you know, manufacturers, the stainless manufacturers, which is a much, much smaller percentage of the overall steel production, kind of the specialty metals from Europe got caught up in that. And with a lot of people in the States buying that material, they were impacted now because of this situation we're in right now where in the downturn there's only a limited supply of specialty steel manufacturers producing kind of high quality stainlesses and you know specialty metals in the world primarily in europe and u.s i mean it's much much more constrained than say carbon steel
1: listeners. First, I gotta tell you, I'm so grateful for you guys tuning in. I know we have lots of competition out there. Freakonomics, This American Life, Joe Rogan. Also, I just want to let you know, if you have guest ideas or questions for me or Lloyd, we'd love for you to reach out. And if you want to talk about future advertising opportunities, we're very happy to talk to you anytime feel free to email me at noah at That's N-O-A-H at G-R-A-F-F-P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot And now back to the episode.
0: When things took a downturn in, you know, during the pandemic, some of these larger kind of publicly traded companies took it upon themselves to cut costs in a way that has had long-term effects on their ability to produce as things pick back up again. So they went to a certain segment of their population, the aging people, offered early retirement, and a lot of people took that. And when things swung back, they went looking and- You're
1: talking about the metals
0: I'm talking about the mills, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so making steel is not easy, right? It takes a long time for people to learn that. And so they were caught- off guard with the amount and this the briskness of yeah. the upturn in business to the point where they just got buried under and they couldn't produce. Because it it's probably hard. Time. I mean,
1: it's probably not the most attractive occupation for people. It's it's a difficult manual labor making steel.
0: It is, but in a lot of these areas, um, the pay is, is right. The is pay excellent. is supposed to be good. And it's, and it's very stable typically. But when they lost, you know, these talented people, they didn't have. The system's in place to scale up quick enough, either bring those talented people back or train and scale up fast enough. I don't think anybody could have predicted the challenges with attracting any sort of labor, not skilled labor, but any sort of labor back into the workplace. It's always been a challenge for as long as I've been in business 35 years. Everybody's been talking about uh, tough to find labor, but nobody could have predicted it would be this dire.
1: So the reason we're having the material problem, it's not, I I guess in my mind, I always just sort of pictured it. Boats can't get here. We can't get what we need from overseas, but is the main bottleneck just that the mills can't make it fast enough? Is that the big problem? Yes.
0: It's in my market and in the stainless and specialty steels market is not to do with ships, not getting in. So anything that's going on in the ports or anything like that, that has not been the impact. It might have some aspect, but it's primarily limited capacity. It's constrained capacity for these people to produce the kind of volumes that have, have gone on. And so Med Device is one of our big sectors, right? Okay. And so when the pandemic hit, they delayed and canceled and postponed elective surgeries. Now, you know, as things opened back up again, I mean, I just I just had a knee replacement, right? And so all these people that weren't oh, able to do right. that. There was a backlog and all of a sudden they are just jammed. I mean, the lead times to get in there. So the product.
1: So did you of, have to wait a while to get your new I equipment? had to wait four months to get it. If it had been pre-pandemic, you wouldn't have had to do that probably.
0: Probably not. And so well, a lot of what happened is during the downturn, the OEMs, the big med device companies, for instance, and I'm just selecting this industry because it's indicative and it drives a lot of these specialty metals they chose to, again, look at cutting costs. And they did it by way of paring down inventories. So not only did they have not new orders coming in, but then they went and pared down their inventory.
1: Oh, so it was a double thing. First, the mills couldn't produce it. And then secondly, people needed more inventory because they had gotten rid of all, any reserve inventory they had.
0: Exactly. So now they have to build up inventory and fulfill orders that might be two x. So you've got this compounding effect that's happened in the marketplace, and it's just constrained the ability to produce, and that's why lead times have gone way out. And so people are planning much further out, and we're booking orders 18 months out at this point.
1: 18 and months out. What what had really, it been in pre-pandemic, quote-unquote, normal times what it had been because everybody's doing just in time before right so
0: well no but but a mill run might have taken four to six months which is fairly customary i mean you might have gone down to three but it's always you know been a lengthy process to to make steel and And now
1: it's 18 months yeah
0: we're booking 12 to 15 months out we have orders that for Mm -hmm. deliveries that go all the way through 2023 right now
1: Wow. And who knows what the demand is for their parts is going to be in 2023.
0: Exactly. But I think there is a certain mindset, which is also driving even more pressure into the market is that you have panic buying. So because people are concerned about not being able to procure or secure material for future Mm. orders, they're buying in the hopes with the idea that, hey, at least I'll have material if I have to sit on it for a while that's okay, but at least I'll have it. Because right now,
1: you can't sell yeah. anything if you don't have it. Right. right. So the Fear fear of missing out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Interesting. Okay, so that gives me a much better understanding of what the heck's going on. So now, what advice do you have for machining companies?
0: Uh, I think um, a, a couple things. Um, first off, I would suggest that you start off by taking a much longer uh, view of your business and understanding the full supply chain. So start with your customers and, and find out, and and, and I know this is really challenging because we deal with OEMs ourselves. It's really trying to get them to see, you know, and project 12 months out so that because they need to understand and you need to communicate with them, especially if you're the one who are you
1: talking about when you're referring to OEM?'s like Johnson and Johnson you're saying, or yeah, any
0: any of the original equipment manufacturers, if the customer that's designing and building the final component, all right, and in some cases that might be, you know it depends on what industry vertical you're in and in, in cases where um, say med device, a lot of the machining companies are dealing directly with you know the, the large companies or a large contract manufacturing company who still has a lot more visibility into the design and development of those components. Somebody that's involved with understanding that's close enough to the end market to be able to say, this is what we think we're going to need. And then you look at, you kind of take that information, you go back to your material suppliers and determine what is the lead time for something, that type of material, because it does vary by grade, okay?
1: Okay. Uh,
0: not all stainless steels have the same lead times, for instance, right? And depending on the grade, depends on how many different suppliers there are, what your options are. Find out what that landscape looks like. Communicate that back to the customer so they get a picture of what they're going to need, because they might say, well, geez, I got 12 months of inventory. I don't need to place anything there. Yeah, but it might take 15 months to get material. So, yeah. You know, you've got to be looking far enough ahead. And if they get into a situation where there's a gap and you know that you're not going to be able to get material to support their demand, then you try, have conversations with them. Are there alternative materials that we can use? Sure. And you can get into some of those discussions. This is where a company like Boston Lens can really help.
1: You are good for giving people advice on alternative materials. This is one of the well, things you offer.
0: Well, we, we won't commit to a design and you know change or anything like that like we're not going to tell an OEM oh, yeah, you can substitute this material for that but if they provide options in terms of what it is they're looking for, we can come back to them with suggestions on what might meet their needs. So if we understand what the ultimate requirements are from a wear resistance standpoint or a ductility or you know some of the properties that are required, we can go to our you know experts in our supply chain and we can come back and provide solutions to say, listen, if you do this, this is what this supply chain and this is what this lead time looks like. This is what this lead time looks like. So it really comes down to a lot of communication amongst all the people in the supply chain. And again, company like Boston where we have those connections. We can do a lot of that running around for our customers to be able to provide that type of information and then go and secure that material Right. And ensure that there's continuity of supply going forward. Mm -hmm. So because
1: I just feel like if I'm somebody making parts, I mean, number one, I'm scared to bet on the market in two years or even a year. What happens if they do make an order and then everything goes south? Are they already on the hook or can they cancel their order for the metal?
0: It really depends on where it is in the process. So there are orders that are being placed today that might not begin rolling for six months. So there is a period of time where you okay. can cancel it for no charge. Once it's in the lineup, it really depends on what the work and process cost and you know accumulation is to that point. We will work with our customers to try to and delay the, any of those But And what costs.
1: if the price changes in six months? Are you screwed with the price that you bought it at?
0: you are from a base price standpoint. There is a fluctuation mechanism in place called the raw material surcharge, which is based on some of these elements, like nickel, for instance, right? And we saw what happened with nickel a couple of weeks ago where there was a huge spike. It's come back down, you know, and more in line, but that is a floating mechanism and that is priced at the time of delivery. So the base price won't change, but that floating mechanism can. So if you're building in what it is today and you buy something a year from now, that price is gonna change. Again, my advice to the machining companies, if you work with your customers, you should be putting on the table that these are the options with a raw material price escalator component to your pricing to the customer. There are gonna be some customers out there, machining companies that say, I can't do that. Maybe they have a heavy concentration of business with one company, they don't have much leverage, Obviously, there's not a lot you can do in that situation. But again, I think that there's an understanding throughout the marketplace right now as to the dynamics and the the dynamic kind of environment that we're in. And so if they truly are a partner and somebody they want to work with, they should not assume that you pick up all the risk. This is all about risk. And so you want to firm up as much as you can in terms of the pricing but there's certain element of risk that should be shared, you know, by the machining company and their end customer at the end of the day.
1: Sure, but I mean, people are pretty cutthroat in this business too. At the same time,
0: well, you know, look, I mean, you know, our approach is fair. What's fair? What makes sense? You know, you know we always try to approach things from a value standpoint, and and we we try to put all the options sure. on the table and do the best we can to commit to what's going to work best at the end of the day. But To just strong arm and say, you know, well, you got to take it or leave it or, you know, I don't want to assume any risk. You should have all the risk. I'm sorry, that just doesn't fly in today's marketplace. It's just not realistic. Sure,
1: sure. Okay, so that's maybe how to handle it in the long term. But okay, short term, your choice is to go to you or somebody else and find a substitute metal, perhaps. Anything else you can do? Is there like a gray market for metal? Is there... Is there some secret to finding it and then maybe they can find it somewhere else and then get it, send it to you and have them, you grind it? Yeah, we
0: we can do that. But I'll tell you one of the, you know, it's a kind of, um, I wouldn't say it's a hidden value, but it's, it's certainly something that's not talked about much is our sourcing capability because we've been in business for so long. We know all the players in the market. If you're a machining company and you're typically dealing with, you know, 10 or 20 different material grades, we deal with 300, 400 call us, let us pick up the phone, call these places, let us do all the legwork for you. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't cost anything. And we're going to come back to you with a pretty damn, you know, extensive search on, you know, what your options are, and then you can make decisions from there. So that's a service that's really important today. And a lot of customers rely on us to, to help them. And there are situations you can't avoid it because nobody could have predicted that the lead times went from six to 12 to 15 months. You know, in a matter of weeks, there are companies that are kind of left in the short hairs without continuity of supply. And so they place the long term order to secure that in the future, they're going to have material, but then they need spot buys. And We have a couple of customers right now where
1: spot buys them... because of the price fluctuation, you mean? No, no
0: spot buys because they don't have material to run their job. Oh, so they have to pay whatever the market's going to bear. And we might find, you know let's just say that the order is a thousand feet a week, whatever. Right. And that's what their usage is. And, you know, they have three months, 12 weeks that they have a hole. Well, we might go find 1500 feet from this supplier and 1200 from this and 800 from this. And, and we'll go patch together a bunch of spot buys to bring them through that, period where they're waiting for the mill run to come in. We'll do all that work, supply- I'm it, assuming that that's
1: one of the main things you guys are spending your energy on right now.
0: Absolutely. It's, we have so much time spent building you know, those pipelines, keeping those lines of communication open, jumping and securing material. We've also done a pretty real good job of anticipating this in the pandemic and purposefully not depleting our inventory and then as soon as we saw an uptick in February of 2021, we started placing orders before the lead times extended. So we've had a much more robust inventory than most okay. through this downturn.
1: See, I'm picturing, I mean, I would have just figured the prices would just skyrocket like oil or something with the scarcity. Is is, is we're just that-
0: we're just now Noah, seeing some of that come through. We over the poor course of last year, we saw a couple of six to eight percent type price increases. Which is even higher than you know, a lot of times we'll see three I would or four. I would have
1: thought of a lot more than that.
0: Well, just recently we've seen 10 to 20, just in the past weeks, because people are reacting to what's going on out there.
1: Right. Right. Well, that was what was gonna bring me to next. What what's going on out there right now? We got Ukraine, we got Russia, we got sanctions. How are the sanctions affecting the metals market and, and also just you in particular?
0: A lot of the pig iron, which is used to make steel, comes out of the Ukraine and, and Russia. Interesting. And both, both been, countries. Both countries, and so there's been a real constraint on what can, uh, what, what we can get for pig iron out of those two countries.
1: Why do they call it pig iron?
0: Uh, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure, but it's it's a, it's a um, you know kind of a feeder for making steel, and the alternative is to use scrap. So that's going to have a big impact on scrap prices because that's going to be a much higher demand because they can't get the pig iron. So that's that's affecting steel in general. Okay. Um, the titanium market has been demonstrably impacted because a lot of the raw material for titanium comes out of Russia. A lot of the sponge um,
1: used. Not Ukraine, just Russia mainly.
0: Primarily Russia. We've already seen certain mills. Say that they are um, only gonna do business with contract customers. They're not gonna do transactional buys anymore or you know, sales anymore to customers. We've seen, you know, impacts to, to pricing, but availability is gonna be a real challenge.
1: until. it's the only place we can get some of these things is Russia. Certain
0: grades of titanium, yes, but a lot of the raw material, it's a matter of capacity in an already constrained market. I don't know what the numbers are, but let's just say it's thirty percent of the raw material. That's a very impactful percentage, and even if it's you know ten or fifteen, to take ten or fifteen percent of supply out of the picture for an already you know overheated market, it's it's really challenging.
1: Wow! And I heard on a podcast about nickel. So nickel is another big thing from Russia.
0: So you know you can find nickel you know, all over the world. The the challenge with nickel is it's traded on the London Metal Exchange and there are a lot of, you know, commodity speculative buyers of it. They don't take inventory. They're just hedging it for, you know, pricing, trying to arbitrage the price. So,
1: And that's different from some of the other metals that you work with, though? I think they would be similar.
0: It doesn't have the same volume that nickel does. So this cobalt, chromium, molybdenum, ADM. There are other elements that are also traded, but nickel is by far the biggest one. And nickel is used in the lithium ion batteries and you know for electric cars.
1: Are nickels actually made of nickel? No. Okay. I'll, I'll like at
0: one point there was an element and maybe a very small element today, but not much so, of it is.
1: Okay. So they're mainly there a huge thing is the lithium-ion batteries. So that's, that's gonna be big, hurting.
0: That's a constant growing demand for nickel
1: so nickel goes into your bars as well right
0: it's a big big component for stainless steels and obviously nickel aerospace and nickel grade alloys Inconels, Manel's, monels you know nickel 718 600 x 750 these alloys are getting impacted you know exponential factor because of the uh the supply and 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 demand type uh um you know kind of conundrum that we're in right now in this conflict with ukraine and russia is just adding fuel to the fire.
1: What else is there? Anything else that you see firsthand that's coming from this conflict, as far as metals or your business? Uh,
0: not, not that it has been played out yet. Uh, these are just uh, things that we're seeing and hearing from our metal suppliers right now, and people that I know in the industry, um, all the way into the mining aspect of it. But it remains to be seen, you know, how long and how much of an impact you know, this is going to have, and it really depends on the conflict and, you know, what the length is and the severity is, um, this going forward. So it really is, it's, it's crazy, but you know, there's, there's a thought out there that, um, you know, somehow the world is going back to being more provincial and, you know, stateside and, you know, globalization is bad and we're, we're a connected world. There's no way around it. Sure. Conflicts like this and, you know, and issues like this happen. And there are ripple effects throughout.
1: Absolutely. Just a couple other questions: Is there is there something recently that you read or you watched that really made an impression on you, either emotionally or, or just sort of intellectually, or just something you learned somewhere? So, um, don't try to I, be I, too I, clever.
0: No, 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 no. I mean, I just because of the topic, and I think you know, I, I'm trying to educate myself and stay you know, kind of abreast of these geopolitical situations and the impacts to our industry as I possibly can. So some of the things that I just mentioned regarding pig iron, regarding supply of titanium, I always knew, but I've reached out to some experts over the last couple of weeks, people that I know in the industry, people that have a lot more of a global view on things. And I've been able to kind of come back and, you know, both help our organization, but then all of our partners as well. So I constantly trying to understand what those implications are going to be to our business and our world. So
1: that's, that's going to be going in my list tonight of things I've learned. And I'm definitely going to look up why they call it pig iron. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have anything else that you'd like to say to the people of the world Um, before we finish up?
0: Yeah. You know, I I, I think that, um, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about, you know, kind of what we're trying to do at Boston Centerless, you know, this whole one-stop shop, but it you know, really is understanding our customer's world and understanding the challenges that they're facing. And how can we alleviate any of that, you know, and take any of that off of their plate?
1: That is right? the so, secret, I think, to, to being successful.
0: Right. And so I think, you know, it's really hard to find skilled labor. And it's really hard to try to maximize output on the capital equipment that you have. And so we kind of have this term, you can find skilled labor, buy skilled material. And so we put a lot of emphasis on providing material that can be a substitute for labor because of the efficiency gains that you can get by going with a tighter tolerance material. And in some cases, greatly reducing or eliminating the labor quotient and producing a component. So if you can get another 15, 20, 30% production out of your equipment, might save you on a capex but more importantly enables you to utilize the labor that you do have in a more disparate mm-hmm. fashion so
1: well could better ground stock could that also help compensate if you are forced to buy older machines a lot of companies are buying used machines that never would before or can the metals not really do that much to
0: No absolutely it really that. doesn't it, it really is it's the process more than anything else the components that you're manufacturing, you know, it doesn't matter the age of the machine. If there's a requirement in there, you're trying to produce real precise components, then by going with a, a, a much more tight tolerance and consistent mm-hmm. bar, you can set your machines up to take advantage of that. And you just get much, much higher reliability.
1: You don't I just need never, I never really thought about that, that I never really saw it as the material could actually compensate for less good human capital.
0: That's- it can. And, we even have a division we call it Swiss Assist. And so we will deploy experts to help work with our customers to help quantify and show an ROI on going from an inferior product to you know, a Boston Sentinelist product and what type of savings you can enjoy by doing that. So it's kind of a risk-free trial that we can set up. That's how confident we are that it can, you know, that it works. So
1: that's really cool. I just love doing this interview. If people want to find out more, uh, just bostoncenterless.com. Yeah. yeah.
0: Bostoncenterless.com. Exactly.
1: Well, it's a pleasure and I look forward to talking more to you soon. And I'll definitely be recommending you to some of our customers. If they're, if they're complaining about material, I'll say, well, have you guys tried them? So.
0: Yeah. We'll do the best that we can Noah. And I, I appreciate the opportunity and, uh, Love all the good work that you do at uh, today's machining world. And uh, you and your dad, uh, you're, you're a great voice for the industry. So thank you.
1: Thank you. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com.